Good morning. It is good to see you. It's a joy to be able to worship alongside of you uh, this morning and to be able to open God's Word together. So if you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, just continuing uh, this beautiful study through the book of Hebrews. As kind of you just saw on the screens, we are kind of in a series within the series right now. That's kind of how we've gone through the book of Hebrews, looking at how Jesus is the better hope. Jesus is the better hope. And so as we come to this uh, text this morning, I'm just praying that the Lord would use our time together to grow our faith, that Jesus is not just a hope, but he is the hope, the hope for your life, for my life, for your family, for my family, for our church, uh, and that would just change the way that we live. So I'm just going to read starting uh, in verse 26. I'd invite you just to read along with me Hebrews chapter 10. For, and anytime you see for or therefore, it's a connecting word that kind of pulls in the passage. We've been talking about the last few weeks that because of the blood of Jesus Christ, because of his body that was offered for us, because he is the great high priest, that we can draw near to him with hearts, full assurance, full confidence, full faith. Because Jesus is our great high priest, because his blood was shed, his body was offered for us, that we can hold fast the confession, the gospel, the confession of our hope, to not waver to the right, to the left, because he is faithful. And we've been reminded and encouraged, challenged through this book, that because of the blood of Jesus, because we have access to God through Jesus Christ, we can consider, we can think about, we can observe how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, to, as we were challenged last week by Pastor Daniel, to agitate, to spur one another on, to grow, to encourage one another as we see the day approaching. And we see this word for, which connects this idea into the section we're reading now. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So the author of Hebrews is now issuing a warning. He has told us the beauty of what we have in Jesus, the access we have, and what that fuels us to do, to hold fast, to draw near, to consider. But now he offers a warning. If those things aren't happening and instead there's a life of deliberate sin that is going on, we should be warned. Verse 27, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. He's referring to Deuteronomy 17. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So the author of Hebrews is quoting from Deuteronomy 32. And he's saying, this God of mercy, this God of compassion, this God of love, this God of faithfulness to his people... But for those who reject this God, for those who live in deliberate sin, for those who trample uh, in the way that they live, the Son of God, justice is coming. 
because God is love, but God is also just. In verse 32, but recall the former days when you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. We're getting a little bit more of the context, a little bit more of a picture of the people this letter was written to. Verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, one that remains. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, your assurance, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For, he quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord. So I know there's a lot going on in this passage. There's a lot here that kind of creates tension within us, and it's meant to. The last couple of weeks, we've been kind of looking at this beautiful passage, talking about who we are in Christ, the access that we now can pursue through all these different means. And now we come into a, a thought right after that that is this warning, a warning of judgment, a warning of sin, a warning of falling away. And what I want you to see this morning as we kind of walk through this passage and unpack it together is that God loves his people and out of his love, he wants them to know the truth. He wants them to walk in the truth. And he wants them to see that faith in Jesus changes the way that we live. So it just kind of, a, I was thinking about this and preparing kind of for this morning. And I was thinking about uh, something that happened in my life that forever kind of changed the trajectory of my life. And that was almost 17 years ago, uh, my wife Katie said, I do. And we became married. And it was an awesome day. But my life looks very different today than it did 17 years ago. And I could probably spend the whole service talking about all the different ways. But let me just give you a few this morning. Like before I was married, I said things like, I will never own a minivan. Guess what's parked outside this morning? I said, I'll never have more than one or two children. And now we have like the Fantastic Four uh, running about in our lives. I said things like, I will never drink coffee. And for those of you who know me well, know I love coffee, but before marriage, there was no coffee in my life. My life is so much more caffeinated now, and I love it. <laughs> I said things like, I would never own cats. I'm with Pastor Mike. There are three cats at my house right now. I said things like, I would never wear polka dots, and here I am in front of you. So what's, what's your point, Paul? Here, here's the point. Marriage changes the way that you live. It's meant to do that, not just, there you go, good job, brother, you've been married a long time. That's a good place for an amen. But not just in your style or what you own or how you approach life. God designed marriage to change a couple. It's a means of sanctification. It's a means of a, a man and a woman coming together in a covenant commitment before God. 
And as they are pursuing God, they are being changed. And God is using them like iron sharpening iron to draw them closer together and become more like him. Marriage is meant to change the way that we live. And for those of you who are married, you have been married, you know that in marriage there's no kind of coasting ground. Either you're growing together or you're growing apart. It's God's design for Marriage, you might say, well, Paul, why are you talking about this in light of Hebrews? Here's kind of a setup to the big truth this morning. Here's our big truth. Faith in Jesus changes the way we live. Just like marriage is meant to change us, faith in Jesus changes the way we live. When we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we are never the same. And it's not just a momentary change. It's not just a past event that happened to us. Faith is a present reality and it is ongoing in its nature of changing the person more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Amen? There's no stasis, there's no coasting in a relationship with Jesus Christ. You're either growing or you're not. Faith changes the way we live. Verses 38 through 39, the author of Hebrews says this, But my righteous one shall live by faith. That's important. Faith is not just a part of a believer's life. It is the way that we live in this pursuit of Jesus. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and destroy, but of those who have faith. And what does faith do? Cause us to preserve our soul, to persevere. Faith changes the way that we live. We'll get more into this in the coming weeks. Hebrews 11 chapter 1 describes faith this way. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Talking about God. The life of a Jesus follower is a life of faith. Faith in Jesus changes the way we live. The author of James, the half-brother of Jesus, will say it this way. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So he's not saying that you can have faith and not have works. He's saying, no, that's a dead faith. A true faith, as we see revealed in Scripture, works. It changes the way we live. For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is a dead faith. Faith is meant to work. It is meant to change us. And in Romans 1.17, the Apostle Paul, quoting from the same verse in Habakkuk that the author of Hebrews uses, says this, For in it, talking about the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. That faith is supposed to be the defining mark of a Jesus follower. Faith in Jesus changes the way we live. So when we come to this point in the letter, the, the author has been kind of setting up that Jesus is the true and better, that he is the better revelation, he is the better rest, he is the better high priest, he is the better covenant, he is the better access. So our hope is in Jesus alone, Amen. Let me say that again. Our hope is in Jesus alone. Amen? Amen? And now that he's established that we have hope in Jesus Christ, for the rest of this letter, the author of Hebrews is encouraging 
challenging, pleading to the church and to us that life and hope in Jesus is marked and evidenced by faith. And faith in Jesus changes the way we live. We've said it many times throughout the series that we are called as Christians to grow up, to become more like faith. How do we, or more like Jesus, how do we grow up? The way we grow up is through faith. So that leads to a couple questions this morning that I think are really important and kind of are unpacked through this passage. One is, what is faith? So I'm going to try to answer that a little bit this morning. What is it? What is it not? And that will kind of bleed into the weeks that are coming ahead. But then just very practically, how does faith change the way that we live? So first big idea this morning, kind of a definition for us that we'll continue to unpack in weeks ahead. Faith is confident trust in Jesus expressed in submission, devotion, and endurance. What is faith? Faith is a confident trust in Jesus Christ. It's anchored in him. And it is expressed, it is seen through growing submission, trust, and obedience in Jesus. Growing devotion, this pursuit, this effort, this work of growing in holiness to become more like God. An endurance, a keeping going, a perseverance and not stopping. These things are the marks of faith. In verse 22, which we looked at last week, it talks about faith being assurance or confidence. Confidence in what? Well, verse 23 answers that. Confidence in God. He who promised is faithful. That's important this morning, friends, for us to remember. Our faith is based on God. His character. His work. Not in our present circumstances. That's good news, right? Our faith is not anchored in what's happening to us today or what happened to us yesterday. It's anchored into who God is and what he's done in Christ Jesus. So that means... That if our faith is in our feelings, it's a bankrupt faith. Because guess what? One day you're going to be feeling it, and the next day not so much. Our faith has to be anchored in something more than our feelings. Our faith has to be anchored in something more than our circumstances. Because one day goes really well, things are up and to the right. Tennessee wins a football game, everything's going really well, and then the next weekend, we'll see what happens, but it just kind of rides according to the circumstances. We want our faith to be built in something greater than our circumstances. It's in God's character. Even if our faith is in our faith, it's bankrupt. What does that mean? Well, I think for some of us within kind of the Christian world, we we put our faith in our past experience of faith. So this past moment where we felt something or we responded to something or we experienced something and our faith is built around that but then over time that begins to get shaky and it's distant. Brothers and sisters, if you don't hear anything else this morning, I want you to hear this. Your faith is not based in what happens around you or what you feel in you. Faith is based on the character of God. Who he is, what he has done. So faith is confidence, not in ourselves, but in Jesus. And that faith is expressed in growing submission, growing devotion, growing endurance that happens over a lifetime. 
The outcome of our faith is these things. So if that's what faith is, and we'll unpack that again more in the weeks ahead, a second question that's really important to address is what is the opposite of faith? So if faith is confidence in Jesus, what is the opposite of faith? Because that is what the author of Hebrews is warning us about this morning in this passage, which leads to a second big idea that I want us to consider for a few minutes together. I'm going to use the word unfaith. You could use the word unbelief. That happens in Scripture a lot. So we have faith and we have unfaith. Unfaith or unbelief is a denial of Jesus expressed in deliberate sin, dishonoring God, and diminishing His word. And this is important. That results in eternal judgment. So we have faith, the confidence in Jesus, but then we have unfaith, which is a denial of Jesus. And we see that in these words, and these words are meant to be heavy. So I just want to read them again. I just want you to consider what the author of Hebrews is saying. But he says this in verse 26, If we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Meaning there is no hope. But instead, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witness, witnesses. This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's saying if there were people in Moses' time who on the evidence of a couple witnesses were condemned, how much more will we be condemned if we have rejected the witness of Jesus Christ? And this is what he goes on to say. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the covenant of the blood by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge this people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's heavy. What is he talking about? Is he saying that you can lose your salvation? Is he talking about unbelievers? Why is he giving this warning to the church? What does this mean for you? What does this mean for me? I think there's several things here that's important for us to see. First, faith should not be assumed. If our lives are not changing, we should be concerned. That's the warning. Is faith growing in you? Are you drawing near? Are you holding fast? Are you considering how to stir one another up to love and good deeds? Are you encouraging one another all the more? Are these things increasing and growing as we look forward to the day when Jesus is coming again? If there is no growth toward these things, then maybe there is no faith. So what's the author talking about in this context? Let me just kind of help level the playing field this morning so we're all on the same page. First, he's not talking about losing our salvation. We spent time looking at this in Hebrews chapter 6. You can go back and watch the message, look at the notes, look at the resources there that in Christ there is security for our faith, for our salvation. Secondly, he's not saying that we must live a sinless life. Because guess what, brothers and sisters, we don't. And even this example of 
Moses and the evidence of two or three witnesses, we know that God had provisions for sin. He had provisions for people who sinned to sacrifice this animal and to perform these things so that they could be forgiven and brought back into the camp. So he's not saying that you can lose your salvation. He's not saying that you must live a sinless life. So what is he saying? The author of Hebrews is talking first about apostasy. This original pursuit of Jesus that at some point in a person's life they say, I can't follow him anymore. I don't believe this anymore. This isn't true anymore. They've become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Those who've claimed Jesus but who've turned away from him. It's a picture of someone who's heard the gospel, experienced the teaching of God's word, experienced the grace of God's people and the Holy Spirit working among them and has chosen to turn away, to harden their heart. In our context, this would be someone who says that they're a believer, but maybe now they're an atheist or agnostic. Someone who's approached, you hear the word deconstruction, and that can mean a lot of different things, but someone who's walked through that process and says, I no longer believe. Or someone who says that they follow Jesus, but the version of Jesus they follow is not one that aligns with Scripture. It's one that they've created in their own image, their own likeness. So this is what he's talking about. But here's the second thing, and this is so important. I don't want you to miss this. He's talking about falling away. But secondly, he is talking to us. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. Notice, if you have your Bible open, notice verse 26. Look at how he says it. For if we, who is we? God's people. Notice the author puts himself in this camp. He's not assuming anything even about himself. He's putting himself in this group. He's saying, if any of us do these things, Faith is not genuine within us. And so the call this morning is for us to feel the weight of this warning. Faith is not just a past decision. It is a present action. Association with Jesus is not devotion to Jesus. Be warned. A life that continually neglects and dishonors Jesus leads to eternal separation from him. So what is the author talking about here? I just want to very quickly just give five marks of unfaith or unbelief that we see that he kind of tells us in this passage. We're just going to walk through these really quick. What is he talking about? First, unfaith deliberately pursues sin and runs from repentance. Deliberately pursues sin, runs from repentance. Look again at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately, deliberately, what's he talking about? A willful motivation to turn to sin, to turn from God. This is defiant action, rejecting God's word, rejecting what God has called us to and pursuing instead sin. This is not just falling into temptation or struggling. This is a willful, deliberate running after the things that God has called us not to. Unfaith deliberately pursues sin. It rejects and runs from repentance. It is defiant in his nature. Second, 
not only is it deliberate pursuit, but unfaith, secondly, diminishes and rejects the truth of God's word. Look again at verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So they know the truth, they have heard the truth, they have read or heard God's word, but they deny it, they diminish it, they minimize it, they change it, they ignore it. Unfaith twists scripture. Unfaith moves away from God's word. It moves from the truth toward lies. So is this deliberate rejection of God's way and it is a minimizing, a diminishing of God's word. Third, unfaith dishonors the son, violates his atoning blood and insults the Holy Spirit. This is why this is such a big deal. Because when you deliberately sin against God and you diminish, you reject, you minimize the truth of God's word, ultimately, this is what the author of Hebrews is saying, you dishonored Jesus. You deny him by your actions. You deny him by your words. Look at verse 28, or verse 29, sorry. How much worse will the punishment do you think be deserved by the one who is trampled underfoot the Son of God. That to live in deliberate sin, to reject God's word, is to deny Jesus, who has profaned the blood of the covenant, meaning has diminished or neglected or profaned Jesus' blood that was shed for us, and has outraged the Spirit of grace, means to insult the work of the Holy Spirit. This is heavy stuff. This is really, really uh, bad. We don't want this to be true of us. Not only has this person fallen from grace, but they mock the giver of grace, Jesus Christ. They reject his blood sacrifice. And this happens today when you hear people talk about, you know, we don't need the blood, or the, that's barbaric, or whatever that might be. It's a diminishing of Jesus' payment on our behalf. And ultimately, it's a rejection of the Holy Spirit. Not merely sinning against him, but they insult and despise him because the work of the Holy Spirit is to reveal God's word. It is to magnify Jesus. And so to go on sinning deliberately, to reject God's word, is to despise the Holy Spirit. And so the author of Hebrews is warning us, church, you and me, don't be this. Don't fall into this. Unfaith deliberately pursues sin and runs from repentance. Unfaith diminishes and rejects the truth of God's word. Unfaith dishonors the Son, violates his blood, insults the Holy Spirit. Fourth, those living in unfaith have no hope of salvation. Let me say that again. Those living in unfaith have no hope salvation say Paul that seems really harsh seems heavy are you saying that the gospel can't save certain people that's not what I'm saying what I am saying is this if you reject Jesus there is no hope for you to deny the son means you deny the only way of salvation and that's what's happening that's what he's describing look again at verse 26 if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin is he saying that the gospel is forfeit no but he's saying that these people have rejected the only hope that they have 
Don't become this. Don't be like this. And fifth, those living in an unfaith are under God's judgment. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That if you trample the Son of God, you are under God the Father's justice. This is meant to sober us. This is meant to create a holy fear within us. that We don't want this to be true of us. And we don't want this to be true of others around us. So how do we respond to these realities? One is repent. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're living and have been living in deliberate, unrepentant sin against holy God, you are under God's judgment. Repent. Or maybe you're here this morning and you say, man, I'm a believer. But when you look at your life, like God's word isn't present. Pursuing sin is present. There's a distancing yourself from God's people, God's revelation. Repent. Turn back to God. Ask God to save you. Ask God to help you. Turn from sin. Turn to Jesus. Maybe you're here and you're just visiting this morning. Or maybe you're here and you're trying to figure these things out. We're glad that you're here. Friend, turn to Jesus. Don't let these things become true of you. But second, not just repent. Brothers and sisters, this passage is a call to run. Flee. Don't let this become anything like you. That's the whole point of why the author of Hebrews is saying this. In Jesus we have access. In Jesus we have hope. In Jesus we have life. But don't grow complacent. Don't grow comfortable. Don't let your heart be hardened by the lies of sin. Don't think you could kind of coast your way through the Christian life. No, run from any sign of this. Run from the desire to move the sin. Run from this apathy toward God's word. Run from anything that would be demeaning Jesus and his atoning work. Flee these things. Run from them. Don't let them be a part of you. This passage is meant to create a holy fear in our hearts. This is not meant to manipulate. It is meant to motivate a pursuit of holiness. We should be moved in our soul when we read warning passages like this because this is a warning passage given to the church. I think about in the book of Revelation, the letter to the churches, Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. Jesus gives this letter to the churches. One of those is the church at Ephesus. He says, there's much good to say about you, but you have lost your first love. Return. That's what this is meant to do. Turn back to that love. Turn back to God. Restore your former love. And lastly, repeat. Share the good news of God. Share the gospel with people around you. Be worried, be concerned for those in your life who do not know Jesus, who are under God's judgment. Be moved enough to action to share the truth, to talk about what God has done in you, through you, for you, through Jesus Christ. Faith is a confident trust in Jesus. Unfaith is a denial of Jesus. 
expressed through the way that we live. Church, let us not become this. Let us be warned of this. So this leads us to a final question this morning. How does faith change the way that we live? If we know what faith is, if we have this warning, this picture of what unfaith or unbelief looks like, how should faith be changing us? Just a few big ideas really quickly before we wrap up. And I just encourage you to think about these in light of your personal life, your response to Jesus Christ. Next big idea is this. Faith produces fear, awe, and honor of God. Faith produces fear, awe, and honor of God. This is how faith changes the way we live. See, unfaith centers on self what I want, what I feel, what I need. Genuine faith is centered on God. What he has done, what he has called me to. How do I honor and glorify him? How do I live for him? Faith re-centers us from focusing on self to focusing on God. Faith is marked by growing trust or submission in God, a clinging to him. I think about uh, when we took our kids to the beach when Tripp was really little for the first time and he liked the sand but he did not like the ocean. So I did what all really good dads do. I picked him up and carried him out screaming into the ocean, right? Like we are going to take this head on because I love you, right? Because that's what parents do. Well, when we got out into the water and he is scared to death, guess what he did in that moment? He grabbed hold of me with everything that he had, right? He clung to me. He didn't say, well, you are the author of my pain, so I'm getting rid of you, right? Looking for a shark, something to take me back in. No, he clung to me quickly. Not because he was happy with what I did, but because he trusts me. Friends, faith in God calls us to cling to him, to trust to him, to center on him. Not on our surroundings, not on ourselves, but run to God. Faith produces fear, awe, and honor of God. It is the reverse of what we see in this warning passage. That a heart that is in unfaith or unbelief pushes from God, distances from God, distances from Jesus. No, genuine faith draws us near to God. Jesus said it this way, the greatest commandment is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Secondly, faith produces a desire to pursue holiness. So not only does faith center us on God, but secondly, faith creates in us a desire to pursue holiness, to run from sin, to run toward what is of God the fruit of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit. See, unfaith follows the passions of the flesh. Or in the Disney version, tells us to follow our heart. Be true to yourself. That's what unfaith does. Distance yourself from God. Follow what you want. But saving faith says, I'm going to deny my desires, deny my flesh, deny sin. I'm going to pursue becoming like Jesus. Because he is the goal. He is the pride. Genuine faith is marked by a growing devotion. Now, one of my favorite parables is in Matthew. 
Jesus tells this story about this random guy who's walking through this random field and he just stumbles upon a treasure. And what he does when he finds this treasure, he buries it. But he doesn't just walk away and go on with his life. No, what does he do? He sells everything he has to buy the field. Nothing else matters but that field. My devotion, my everything I have is lost if I can gain that. That's what faith does. Faith says nothing else in this life matters in comparison to knowing Jesus and becoming like him. And that is a journey and it takes time and it's ups and downs and all those kind of things. But it's a trajectory of saying, I am going to follow Jesus with all that I have. Colossians 3, 1 through 5 speaks to this. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things of this earth. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he goes on with the list. Faith creates a desire to pursue holiness. Third and last big idea this morning, faith produces sacrificial perseverance. Sacrificial perseverance to keep running, keep going, keep following Jesus. And we see a picture of that in verses 32 through 39. I wish we had another 15 or 20 minutes just to unpack this part of the passage because it's so beautiful. But what the author of Hebrews does is he first gives in this section a warning. Brothers, sisters, do not become this. But then secondly, he gives them a reminder. Friends, this is who you are. This is what God has done for you. This is the faith that began in you. Genuine faith is marked by ongoing sacrifice. If you have your Bible open, you can just kind of read through this with me. Verses 32 through 39. First, he talks about after they were enlightened, meaning coming into faith. He talks about the cost of their faith. They endured hard struggle with sufferings. They endured public reproach. That means they were verbally assaulted and affliction, physical pain. Then sometimes being partners with those so treated, association with those who've been thrown in prison. The cost of their faith was real, but the character of their faith was also real. For you had compassion for those in prison. There was a love for God's people that was being seen in them. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. We could spend all day talking about that verse. Joyfully accepted the plundering of their possessions. Wow. Why? Because Jesus is better. He's better than stuff. He's better than career. He's better than family. He's better than power. So you see the cost of their faith, but you see the character of their faith. And then he calls them, calls them to continue in faith. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. The coming one will come and not delay, talking about Jesus. And he says, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He's saying, friends, this is who we're called to be. Don't fall into unbelief. 
Don't fall under the judgment of God. No, run, walk, live by faith. You were called by faith. Live by faith. So the question for us this morning, church family, is this. Is your faith changing you? Is it changing you? Are you becoming more like Jesus? So how do we respond? Three ways. First, we draw near. We draw near. I'm going to invite the team to come up. They're going to lead us in just a moment. As we come into a time of prayer and kind of consideration. How do we respond to this message? One, we draw near. For some of you this morning, friends, maybe you've never drawn near. You've never trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord. For others, maybe you have, but for some reason, drawing near is not the pattern of your life. To abide, to pursue God, His Word, through His Spirit, because of His Son. Draw near. Second response this morning is to hold fast. To not waver, but let your hope be centered on Christ. Cling to the gospel, the confession that God has given us. Then a third response is to consider how do we stir one another up to love, to good works. Pastor Daniel unpacked that meant last week, but here's what I want you to hear this morning. One of the greatest graces that God has given us is his people. To grow in faith, to grow in holiness, to grow in love. We were created and called in the community of God's people to build one another up and to be built up by one another. Maybe there's distance between you and God because you've distanced yourself from the people of God. How are you pursuing one another. I just want to invite you to bow your head where you are this morning and respond to the gospel. How do you need to draw near? How do you need to hold fast? How do you need to consider how to stir others up to love and good deeds? Maybe this morning for some, the response is to repent. Turn from sin to trust in Jesus been trusting in your own effort instead of in Christ. For many of us, it's obedience. It is to set our mind and our hearts to pursue what God has called us to. Maybe the response this morning is just to rejoice. Like you're running after Jesus. God is changing you. And it's just to celebrate this morning. God, thank you for your grace that I can see at work in my life. For some of us, it's to share it's to take the good news of what we've learned back to our families, our coworkers, our neighbors to share the gospel. What is your next step of obedience? Father God, I pray this morning for my brothers and sisters. This is a heavy passage. We thank you that your word calls us out of apathy and complacency into pursuit. Would you change the way that we live? Would you grow our faith? Would you help us to become a people, a church family? that are marked by faith. Father, and for anyone in this room this morning who is in that category of deliberately 
running from you, sinning against you, trampling Jesus by the way they're living this morning, would you save them? Would you open their eyes to see that you died for them, that blood was shed for them, that they would put their faith and trust in you? Lord, would you help us as your people to build our lives on you? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.